All right, guys. Well, great, uh, great to be together. If you'll take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter six, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the husband's role in the home, and I guess more specifically about uh, being a dad, being a father. But I think it will apply uh, not just to fathers. Hopefully, by the time we get to the end, um, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, being a father. I'll always remember when I first became a. A father, Marta was, uh, we weren't able uh, to get pregnant for a long time, and so we thought that maybe uh, we weren't going to be able to have children, and now we have nine, so uh, the doctor was definitely wrong when he told us that, but we, it felt like uh, forever um, before Marta got pregnant, and then when she was pregnant, those nine months uh, felt like the longest nine months of my life. I mean, they felt like nine years. Um, I thought McKenna would never come out. We were trying to do everything at the end to get the baby out. We would like drive over uh, bumps really fast because we thought maybe that would help. And I would uh, give her special salad dressing. I mean, we were young kids, so we thought anything. We didn't know how the world worked, but we tried to give her special salad dressing, so maybe that would uh, make the baby come out faster. But uh, finally, uh, McKenna came out. It was actually a 36-hour labor, so Marta really suffered in there and it was like an emergency at the end and they had to do a c-section and and so we were just uh holding this little she came out purple so we see a little smurf um really scary but holding the little baby uh in my arms i remember and just feeling this huge privilege what a privilege we've been praying about this for so long and then also looking down at her and thinking oh boy what do i do now you know what this is uh this is big what 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 does God want for me? And uh, I want us to think about what God wants for us as uh, husbands and as, as fathers. What specifically does it mean to be a, a good dad? Because, of course, I mean, uh, there are lots of ideas. And uh, everyone has kind of an opinion on what a husband should be and on what a dad should be. I don't know what are some of the most common answers to that question here. I would think... Probably around the world, most people think uh, a husband or a father, the most important thing is that he makes enough money, uh, that he provides. That's a big one. Provide, and by provides, they mostly mean financially. I think that would be the way a lot of people think about the responsibility of a husband and uh, a father. But God's call on you as a man is much bigger than that. If you're a man, thank the Lord that you're a man. God, thank you that I'm a man. But also realize that he has given you a big responsibility in this world. And especially in your home. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6 uh, verse 4. Because Paul is uh, talking about how to live in our families in a way that brings the maximum amount of glory to God. And uh, when he talks about children, he tells them to obey their parents. And when he talks about parenting... Verse 4, he talks uh, to fathers. Fathers. There's actually a word for parents, so he could have said parents, but he actually says fathers. And maybe he uh, says fathers because he knows uh, that many men don't really appreciate their responsibility. Obviously, uh, wives and moms have a huge role in the family. And uh, the way a wife or mom is impacts the family forever. But Paul here, bold prince fathers, I think, because he knows that as men... Uh, we often don't take our responsibilities very seriously. Sometimes we don't even know what our responsibilities are. And so uh, he 
here talks to us as fathers, as men, and he gives us uh, two primary responsibilities. And so I want us to think about these two primary responsibilities, what fathers are to do according to God and what they are not to do, what fathers are to do, what they're not to do. And uh, he starts, actually, Paul, with what they're not to do. If you look down at the text, you'll see that Paul identifies two responsibilities. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That is first there. That's the first responsibility. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's the second. And so the first responsibility that a dad has is not to provoke his children to anger. Or you could say, Your first responsibility as a man is not to make it easier for your family to sin. Which is a negative kind of command. It's like, stop, don't. And it seems kind of simple. Don't provoke your children to anger. Uh, But it's not simple when you think about the culture in which Paul was writing. Because he was uh, writing to people who thought of a man as being able to do whatever in the world he wanted to do in his home. So the father in that culture was definitely the king. And that means uh, what they might have expected Paul to say was, children, don't provoke your children. Uh, don't provoke your father to anger. But never the other way around. They would never have thought of Paul saying, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. They would have thought in terms of the children's responsibility to the parents and not the parents, and especially not the father's responsibility to the, the child. And it still can feel that way in a lot of families, right? At least in the... The Father's mind. We are by nature self-centered, all of us, and so we're going to find ways to somehow make it all about us, especially if we have power. And uh, so we know that, uh, I think maybe we've advanced a little bit, we know we're supposed to act like serving others is important. Um, But the problem is, Serving others doesn't really make sense if this life is all you have and you die and go into the ground. If you uh, live and die and go into the ground, then you should be thinking about your pleasure at every moment. Even if you have kids, they need to exist. They need to increase your pleasure. And so uh, if you're not a Christian, at least in America, you're kind of conflicted when it comes to parenting because you know... It's not right to say, I, my children exist for me. But you don't really have a good reason not to think like that. <laughs> Which is different for those of us who are believers because we've got a whole different story we're using to interpret the world. Because uh, for one thing, we follow a crucified Savior. And for another, we are rising from the dead. And because of that, we don't have to spend all our time thinking about how do I get the most pleasure I can get right now from the people around me? And how can I use these people to do what I want? Instead, because we follow a crucified Savior and because our life is really long, this part of our life is so short, we're rising from the dead, and then it just goes on and on and on. And because of that, we can spend our time as leaders thinking not so much about how to get people to serve us, but how do we serve them? And so as fathers, as Christian fathers, we shouldn't view this position of leadership which God has given us as a privilege which we can use to force others to serve us for our pleasure. But instead, we want to use the privilege of our position as a leader as an opportunity to serve our family for God's pleasure. 
Which is why Paul tells fathers, you need to think about how you're living in the home. And if the way you're treating the people in your home is tempting them, or the word Paul uses, provoking them to anger. So are you living in your home, and if you're a dad, parenting in a way that makes it easier for your children to become angry? Now there's another passage, there's a parallel passage, so that means a passage where Paul talks about the same issue, but he says it a little differently over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. And uh, Paul says there, what does Paul say? He says, fathers, don't provoke your children, so that sounds similar, lest they become discouraged. And I like looking at those two passages side by side because I think they're like opposite sides of the same coin. And what I mean is that sometimes people respond to poor husbanding or poor fathering by getting angry. And other times they respond to poor fathering or poor husbanding by losing heart, by getting discouraged. And sometimes the same person goes back and forth between those responses depending on how he's feeling that day. But when you have a poor leader in the home, you'll find the people he's leading either have no courage, they're weak, they're just resigned, or they're in rebellion and revolt. Which is important to understand because sometimes when someone becomes angry or discouraged, we focus on the person who's getting angry and who is discouraged. And in a sense, we, we should because like a child who's getting angry has a responsibility not to get angry. But here's the thing. They're not the only ones with a responsibility because Paul's saying you can do things that make it easier for other people to become sinfully angry or discouraged. And do you, do you understand that? Do you hear that? When you see, we could say, a wife or, or a child uh, who is angry, uh, if it's your child or your wife, you need to ask yourself, am I to blame? Is there something in the way that I am living in this home that is provoking the people around me to act like this? Now, you say, how, how would I do that? How, how, how would I be the kind of man who disobeys us, who provokes my children to get angry or provokes my, the people around me to get angry or discourages them? Can you get more specific? Because I mean, this is Paul's big thing. Here's what you need to do or not do. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't uh, provoke them to become discouraged. That's good, but... But, like, how would I do that? The book of Proverbs uh, gives at least 22 different ways that you can make other people angry. And so let me work through some of the ways that you can make the people in your home angry as a, as a man, as a husband, as a father. The first way... Uh, to get someone angry is to be a sinfully angry person yourself. So angry parents have angry babies. And there are a lot of Proverbs that talk about that, but one is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18. It says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So you see a person who is consistently angry, uh, you're going to see people around him who are angry as well. 
And so as you look at your role in the home, you need to think, what does Paul tell me not to do? He tells me I'm not to make my children anger, not to provoke them to anger. First question, are you an angry person? Are you the kind of person who gets angry easily? I remember, I always remember seeing a mom slap her child in the face for arguing with her. And I was thinking, man, this moment, I wish I could take a picture. Because the mom is teaching the child how to respond when someone says something they don't like. And so it's just like this long, it's like this long circle, this cycle. The child is angry, and part of why the child is angry is because the mom has trained the child to be angry by responding to things she doesn't like in angry ways. A second way to provoke your children or others to anger is to speak in harsh or pain-producing ways. So Solomon, he says it like this, Proverbs 15.1, you probably know this verse, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So I always remember uh, one day we had a huge team, missions team from America here, and they had a big uh, pot over at where Blake lives of pup. And I got the chance to have that big stick and stir up the pup. And some people are like that with anger. They're stirring up anger. And one way we stir up anger is through harsh words. So uh, you can be harsh either in... Uh, what you say or how you say it. Um, you know, some people, the way they speak to you, it's, it is a little bit like they're slapping you on the face. And if someone's slapping you on the face, you have a responsibility to be kind back and to be loving back. We always used to tell our children that. I don't really care what that person did to you. You have a responsibility to respond with love back. But... Obviously, if someone's slapping you in the face as they're talking, it's going to be harder for you to respond graciously back to them. You're like, hey, they're like, hey. You say, okay, okay, and then next time, next thing. And your words can be like slaps in people's faces. And, you know, some of you, this might be hard, this might be a hard uh, thing to to change. I've been with some uh, little children, and... um, I, just realizing that like, their parents are allowing them to speak in ways that are like putting fingers in people's eyes from babyhood. And so again, as dads, we're talking about dads training up your children. One of your responsibilities is you, words have such power. You, you, words can either promote health in a family or they can make a family sick. And so one of the most important things you can learn to do as a father is to teach your children. There's two ways of saying things. You can take the same situation. A person who knows how to use words can create massive conflict. Or a person who doesn't know how to use words can create massive conflict. Another person in that same situation says almost the same thing, but he's learned how to use words in a way that actually produces healing. And so... If you look at your family and you like angry people around you, you need to ask, is it because I haven't learned to use words? I'm like slapping people with my words. It's like slap, 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 slap in the way I'm saying certain things. Because uh, a harsh word 
stirs up anger. Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to be angry. This is your first responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. You say, how do I do that? Well, one, are you angry? Two, are you a harsh person? Maybe the tone of what you say is harsh. You're just like, why can't you get that right? Or you can say, you know, honey, that seems hard for you. Uh, What's difficult about that? Is there something that's difficult about that? So the tone of those two things is, is, is very different. Even the words you choose can build somebody up or, or tear them down. A, a third way to make people angry is to refuse to overlook their mistakes or sins. So I always think, imagine someone who followed you around all day, and every time you made a mistake, they pointed it out to you. Now, I know that um, sometimes Germans might like that more than Americans, but... Uh, most of us would not love if every single time we tied our shoes, someone was like, you know what, double loop is better. Or we uh, put our our Bible on the uh, thing here. We're like, no, I think you need to put your Bible here. Um, And uh, they keep, if we made a mistake in the past, we keep bringing it up. I remember like, I'm telling you to put your Bible here because 10 years ago, when you were like five years old, I saw you drop your Bible. You remember how bad it was when you dropped your Bible when you were like five years old. And now I know you're 35, but let's get the Bible in the right place. (laughs) Most of us, that would drive us crazy. And yet that's how some people are with others and even with their children. Proverbs 10, 12 says it like this. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over offenses. And so there's like a contrast there. Between hatred and love. What does, what does love do? Love covers offenses. And what that means is when you really love somebody, you're willing to overlook times they hurt you. You don't have to bring up every sin or mistake. And, and you know, there are times where it hurts so badly you do need to bring it up. Because you, it, you're having a hard time getting over it. But even when you do bring it up, if you really love them, it's almost like you don't want to. But when you don't love someone, you know what you do? You're constantly pointing out the errors they make. You're constantly pointing out the mistakes they make. Not so much to help them, but to shame them. And if your children are angry, you might ask yourself, or if the people around you are angry, you might ask yourself, is it because I don't ever show them any grace? Are you one of those people who has to point out every mistake every time your children do something you don't like? So as Christians, I'm I'm convinced that we should be the most grace-giving people in the world. Because we've been shown the most grace. So we should be people that just, you know, you, you poke us, out comes grace, undeserved kindness. And yet the reality is a lot of Christians aren't like that. A lot of Christians are easy to offend. So there was a guy named Jay Adams who used to talk about big toes, small toes. And that sounds funny to put it like that, but... Uh, When people have big toes, it's very easy to step on their feet. It's very easy to offend them. Small toes, you know, there are people that's hard trying to step on their feet, but their feet are so small, you can't step on their feet. And so there are people, I think this is a massive problem, who are so easily offended all the time. You can barely, you know, you can barely look at them without them being offended. How, How dare you look at me that way? And there are other people... It's almost impossible to offend them. 
I remember Alan telling me one time when he was in the grocery store, he was pushing a cart, and uh, somebody kept knocking him with their cart in the back of his feet, and it was like the fifth time when Alan finally turned around, and it was somebody he knew. Imagine being knocked by a grocery cart in your, uh, the back of your feet five times by somebody before you turn around. That's a, that's a guy that's pretty hard to offend. Me, I'm like, what? I mean, I'm just walking here, and why are you doing that? But Alan's like five times until he turns around. He's a hard guy to offend, you know? He's a hard, time, he's a hard guy to get upset, and yet uh, if you're the kind of person who's easily offended, you shouldn't be surprised. If you're the kind of person who doesn't give grace... You shouldn't be surprised that your children have a hard time giving grace or the people around you have a hard time giving grace. And you shouldn't be surprised if, they're, if you're constantly offended by others. You shouldn't be surprised if they're constantly offended by you. I often think with my own children, the way that I respond when they do something that hurts me is an opportunity for me to teach them how to respond when I do something that hurts them. Because I'm a sinner. And I'm going to. Another way Proverbs says you can make your children angry or others angry is by being so sure of yourself all the time that you don't take other people's suggestions seriously. So this is the guy who's always right even when he's wrong. Um, In the old days, you know, you had to use maps to get somewhere. Now we have our phones, so this doesn't happen so much, but... There were men in the old days who would never stop and ask for directions. And they could be so lost. You know, like in the middle of uh, Mama Lodi when they're supposed to be in, 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 a, in uh, Pretoria West. And even though it's obvious they're not in Pretoria West, their family's like, Dad, do you know where you're going? They're like, yes. Like, Dad, maybe you should stop for directions. You're like, I'm not stopping for directions. This is totally where I'm supposed to be. And uh, Proverbs 13.10 puts it like this. It says... By uh, insolence comes nothing but strife. And there in that passage, by insolence, he's talking about someone who won't take advice. The kind of person who will never listen to others. And so when your children are angry or the people around you are angry, you should ask, do I ever admit that I don't know something? Do I ever admit that I'm wrong? It's uh, It's not weakness to admit that you don't know something. And it's not weakness to admit that you're wrong. It's just arrogance to act like you know everything and that you've, you've always got it under control. And guess what? It's not going to be long until your children or your wife figures out that even though you're pretending like you know what you're doing, you don't. So you might as well humble yourself and, and tell them. And if you don't, don't be surprised that they become angry. Uh, another way to make... Uh, your kids hate you is to always be so focused on your own personal best and to be so focused on your own personal best that you're willing to step all over people and even your children and, and sin to get it. So this is the kind of dad who, or man who's like, I got a goal. I got something I got to get done. I got to get it done. It's got to happen. And this, this is going to happen. And you're not even noticing the ways that for you to get that goal, you're hurting the people in your family. You're so focused on that goal that, the, that you're willing to step on your own children to get that goal accomplished. Proverbs, uh, 
14, 17 talks about a man of quick temper. So it says a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. And, and it's making a little bit of a contrast there, but it's saying, or a parallel there. It's saying there are some people who are obviously selfish and they don't get what they want. And what happens to them? They just blow up. They can't keep it in. But there are other people who are really selfish, but they're smart. And they're a little self-controlled. So it's not that they're less selfish. It's just that they realize when I blow up, it doesn't work. And so instead of blowing up to get what I want, I need to make plans. And so they scheme in their mind. They're a man of a hot-tempered man, it says here, uh, acts foolishly. But a man of evil devices is hated. And so the man of evil devices is the man, instead of being hot-tempered, just blowing up, he still has a plan to get what he wants. But now in his mind, he's making evil plans. How do I, how do I manipulate this situation so that it seems like I'm a good guy, but I still get what I want to get? And so if your children are angry or the people around you are angry, it might be a, a wake-up call for you to ask yourself if you are so overly focused on yourself and what you want that you barely notice uh, the others that are near you and what's best for them. Six, you provoke your children and the people around you when you always have to win every argument, even arguments that don't matter. So if you ever, uh, in America, they like to take dogs for walks. And um, it's a little bit embarrassing because where we live, actually, they're very serious about the dogs not going to the bathroom on the sidewalk. And so you'll see these people taking dogs and they have these little plastic bags that they have to pick up the dog's poopy and they have to walk with their dog and carry their dog's poopy the whole way. And I think, man, what, what a world where this guy's like <laughs> so rich and he has this the Mercedes that he's driving and yet the dog is really his master. You know, he's carrying his little dog poopy all over the place. It's very... Uh, very embarrassing, but there, if you've ever taken a dog for whenever I think I want a dog, I think, man, I think about carrying a little bag of poop around on a walk. I'd say, no, I definitely don't need to do that. I got other things to do besides that. But if you've ever seen uh, someone, who, uh, if you've ever taken a dog for a walk, you know there are some dogs that, like, they're born to chase, and they'll almost chase anything that moves. So they see the smallest piece of grass in the wind, and they're gone. And uh, when it comes to arguments and quarrels, there are people who are like that. And so they're the kind of people who can't let an argument go. And the writer of Proverbs talks about these kinds of people. He talks about them as a person who loves to quarrel. There are actually people out there. It blows my mind, but it's real. There are people who love to quarrel. And it says you shouldn't be surprised that people who love to fight experience a lot of strife in their life. There are, kind of, there are some kind of people that um, you say hello to them, they know how to make that into an argument. And you're like, wow, I thought I just said hello. And they're like, no, that was much more than a hello. Let's go. <laughs> and so if you're the kind of person who can, who can find arguments in small little things, don't be surprised if the people around you are angry. Seventh, when you're a mocker, we won't go through all these this long, but when you're a mocker, you provoke your children to anger. And by mocker, I mean one of those guys who looks down on his children and uh, makes fun of them. Uh, 
this is uh, this is really sad, but there are people who enjoy making fun of other people. And um, when you have a person who enjoys hurting other people with his words, you're going to have angry children. So Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. So imagine a room filled with all kinds of argument. You just get one guy to go out of the room and all of a sudden it's like, it's like a quiet, peaceful room. Proverbs says that's possible. And the kind of person that can come into a room and make all kinds of problems and all kinds of strife is the kind of person who scoffs, who, who makes fun of others, who, who belittles others with their words. And so uh, as, as so much of this is even connected to believing you're justified by faith, but what can happen in a man's life, I think, is that he wants to be a big shot, and yet he's not a big shot. And so when he comes home, one way that he can make himself feel more important is by looking at kids in his family and saying mean things to them. How, how, how you, you don't even know how to use a screwdriver? What kind of screw up are you? I knew how to use a screwdriver as a baby. I mean, I was like in a diaper and I was using a screwdriver fixing things. And you're some kind of idiot that you can't use a screwdriver? If we know that we're justified by what Jesus has done, then that, that we know that God looks at us and he says, you're, I approve of you. And so that means when we come home, we don't have to use other people to, to build ourselves up because we already have all the righteousness we need in Christ. And so our words can be a grace-giving instead of mocking. And yet if our words are mocking, uh, they're going to be the kinds of words that uh, produce anger. Some of us, you know, you try to teach your kids this, but maybe we should teach us, our, us as men. Some of us think we're really funny. And uh, yet, we don't notice that other people don't think we're quite as funny. And uh, one way to be funny is to say mean things about other people. And so one of the things we always try to teach our, our kids is it's not funny if it's not funny to the other person. If you're, if you're telling jokes and having fun, there's one thing in a family to kind of have fun. But if you're noticing that the other person, this is not actually moving them forward, but it's actually shaping the way they even think about themselves or making them smaller, then you're not accomplishing good. You're actually producing anger. Another way that Proverbs brings up that maybe is surprising is that uh, greedy parents often produce angry children. Proverbs chapter 28 Uh, Verse 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. So a greedy man stirs up anger. So if you have anger, if if you're going to fulfill this command here, Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your children to anger. You you can't be greedy. Now, greed is very difficult to see. So uh, I was talking to someone recently who's having all kinds of marriage problems. And um, I asked them about their, uh, their family situation. And what I found out was that the husband is working uh, double shift. Uh, and he's working, maybe he's working 80 hours a week. And the wife 
also is working 60, 70 hours a week. And they, and they have like three children that are under the age of six. And I was looking at them and thinking, I am not surprised that you are having big problems in your marriage. And of course, we all get in situations, we have to figure out how are we going to survive and all of that. But at the same time, they had never stopped to think, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't a healthy way for us to exist as a family. Like, we never see each other. When we see each other, we're incredibly tired. We've got a ridiculous amount of pressure on us to perform at work, both of us. And our kids, we're having to, to give to other people, and they only get home when we're so tired. And they never thought to think, maybe actually that should change. And part of why they never thought to think that is because it's normal in American culture. And another reason why they never thought to think that is because they want to live in a certain house. And they wouldn't be able to live in that house if both of them didn't have those kinds of jobs. And so that, that is not an option, to, to, to not have both of them work and be able to have an, that kind of house. And so, you know, they're complaining about the state of their marriage relationship. But the question for me is whether or not they're willing to make the sacrifices to make it possible for them to have a peaceful relationship. And uh, so if there's a lot of strife in our home, we need to ask, is it because I'm greedy? And we have to make sure that uh, we don't run away from that question too quickly because our cultures, they train us to think things are normal that are not necessarily normal. And because we think they're normal, we never ask the kinds of questions that we need to ask to make the kinds of changes that we might need to make to produce peace. So here in Africa, another illustration of that would be, and this is tougher because I know it's hard to, to, to survive, But I remember talking to men who have lived away from their families for four or five years, asking for marriage counseling. And I'm like, uh, brother, you know, I'm not going to be able to do much marriage counseling unless you live with your wife at some point. And yet, you know, that felt so normal to him that it would be like, well, how could you ask that? You know, you white person from America, you know, you're so American. How, how could you dare ask that? And I just, going back to America now, has made me realize, well, we've got our own things that we don't ask, like these two people working in this crazy job. And they don't even think to ask, do we need to live in this house? Over here, maybe we have our things that we think are so normal from our culture that we don't even think to like investigate, that actually are creating all kinds of problems, and those problems won't be fixed until we do something about that. If we're going to have, uh, not provoke our children to anger, this is a big responsibility. It's a big responsibility. We need to think about how do we provoke people to anger. And one way you provoke people to anger is greed. And that's a big way because, let me tell you this, the whole world is discipling you. Every, every time you leave here, you are being discipled. Another word for it would be catechized. You know, in the church you come, you're catechized. You're like taught a way to think about the world. When you, you get like an hour a week, that's what we're doing even now. I'm kind of catechizing, a way to think about being a father. When you leave this place, you are getting discipled. 
but not by me and not by believers, but by a world out there. They're discipling you. They're shaping you in a way to think about this world. And you know that probably one of the primary things they're discipling you to be? Greedy. And so uh, that's a problem because if we're greedy, it's going to be difficult to be the kind of father that, or it's going to be impossible really to be the kind of father that Paul wants us to be and that our children need. Maybe let me just run through (laughs) the rest of these. I said 22, so that's going to take a while at this point. But you, you provoke people to anger when you say unkind things about them when you should be supporting them. So, um, as a husband and as a dad, one of your goals should be to be your family's biggest fan. Uh, you, you should be the guy that your kids know. I'm in the, I, nobody else has my back, but my dad has my back. I often tell my children, just joking, but I'm like, hey, do you want my arm? I'll cut off my arm right now. You want my arm? Last night I told my kids, you want my feet when their feet are hurting? I'm like, I'll cut off my feet. You can have my feet right now. Fortunately, they never asked me to actually uh, do that because they realized it wouldn't be of any help. But the point I want them to understand over time is that, like, their dad has their back. But if, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what we talk about what the family's for, place of refuge. But if the person you're supposed to be looking to, to be uh, the way in God's design, the person who's supposed to be there to protect you, is actually the person who is, uh, who's belittling you and who's putting you down and tripping you as you're trying to race, that, that's going to be, that's going to produce angry, angry children. Another way you make children angry or people around you angry is by making being the one in charge and getting other people to respect you the most important thing in life. So even more important than your children's holiness to some guys and even more important than the actual situation to some guys is you must treat me like I'm a king. And if that's the most important thing in your life, you shouldn't be surprised if the people around you are angry. Another way you make people angry is by holding back the resources they need to do well for purely selfish reasons. So obviously, we've got situations in life as dads. We're trying our best, and we don't always have. It's hard for me as a dad. I can't give my children everything they, they need to succeed, and I recognize that. And, and, and some of that's just because of the situation I, I, am, I have in life, or I'm in in life. But on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who's like, my child needs this to be able to do well, but I would rather go out and see a movie myself, or I'd rather go out and wear nice clothes myself. Don't be surprised if that kind of selfishness carries on in your family and selfish people <coughs> stir up a lot of strife. Uh, another way you make your children angry is by... Not taking your children's heart troubles seriously. Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verse 20 says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. What it's saying is, here's a person whose heart is really sad, and here's the other person who's treating it like it's a joke. Now, uh, first of all, 
as men, we sometimes struggle with this. Just, you know, like when you're sick, the whole world stops. When your wife's like, you know, basically got two broken legs and like in bed, uh, you know, with terrible COVID, you're like, where's dinner? Like, uh, um, you know, what's the problem here? Uh, I don't see why this is so hard for you. Uh, I remember one time I had two broken legs and I ran a marathon. I don't understand. <laughs> and then the next time that we have like a little sniffle, we're like, oh, please, feed me grapes, you know, do everything that I say. So it's very hard for us to take other people's troubles seriously. And that can really be true with our kids because we're like, they're like saying something's hard and we're like, you think that's hard. You are so small. I mean, that is not hard. I remember when I was a kid, what my dad would do to me. Now that's hard. And so uh, as, as fathers, part of the, our job is actually to help our kids know what is hard. So that's true. I, I, as with my children, I want to teach them what they really should be sad about and what is not worth being sad about. And at the same time, it's like a, a delicate operation because I can do that in a way that promotes peace and health or I could do that in a way that actually makes it seem like I'm minimizing them as a person and that makes them angry. Uh, another way you make your children angry is by lying to them and then uh, making up excuses for your lies. So Proverbs 26.18 says, Like a madman who throws fire, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. So if somebody is in your house throwing fire at you, it's going to be hard to have a peaceful home, right? And throwing death at you even harder. And so Proverbs is saying, you know, there's a guy who does that. And that's the guy who lies. And then when he's confronted for his lies, he's like, I didn't mean that. <laughs> if you really thought I meant that. You're really that dumb that you thought I meant that. How could you think I meant that? Or... Tells a joke. Oh, you think I, you thought I was serious. That's so cute that you thought I was serious. I was obviously joking. Those are the kinds of things that make for angry relationship. Another way you make people angry is by talking without thinking about whether the timing is appropriate. Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, uh, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. So here's a guy who's saying the right thing, blessing, but he's, he's saying it at the wrong time. And how does the other person interpret it? Cursing. And so uh, this is difficult because some of us, once we have something to say, we're locked in. And it almost becomes like a lust, actually, in our hearts. And we've got to say it. And you know what? We're just looking for the next opening in the conversation to get that off our chest. And so we're not thinking, actually, is this the best time for this person to hear it? Is this the, the best um, moment for them? Are they going to be able to... Res- am I setting them, up, setting them up to respond well? So even last week, there was somebody who's having a conflict, and uh, I was here in South Africa. I wanted to send him a text talking specifically about forgiveness and how to forgive... And it was Sunday, and I had to think about literally the timing. Like, I send him this text now. In America, he's about to go to church. And so he's going to go, what's that going to do in him? Getting a note like that from his pastor before he goes to worship God. Is that going to be helpful and help him worship God? 
No, because I know the context and know the situation. That's probably going to stir him up. His mind is going to go racing. And that day of worshiping and learning something is going to be lost. And so this is maybe the right thing to say, but it's not the right time to say it. And if you don't learn the right time to say things, you actually might be confused because you look at what you're actually saying and you're like, well, what's wrong with that? I said, I said the right thing. And yet you can't figure out why everybody's getting so angry. And the reason they're getting so angry is because of what Proverbs is telling here. You haven't learned the wisdom of saying it at the appropriate time, saying it at the right time. Another way to make children angry is to let them do what they want to do all the time, regardless of whether they should be doing it or not. Uh, Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than uh, hidden love. And uh, there are some parents who almost, it's almost like they think um, that it's unloving to uh, tell their children that they're wrong or to uh, stop their children from doing what they want to do. And you know what happens if you don't rebuke your children and if you don't stop them from doing what they want to do for good reasons is that it actually doesn't produce more peaceful children. It produces uh, more angry children. So this is something you should know about desire and want. You give me what I want, what happens? I stop wanting. I never want anything else for the rest of my life. Is that what happens? No, you give me what I want, I want more. I want more. So the key to dealing with wants is not getting what I want. The key is me learning how to deal with my wants. And so with your children, if you want to help them not be controlled by selfish desires, it's not going to help them for you just to give them what they want all the time. Because if you give them what they want all the time, they're not learning how to deal with their wants in an appropriate way. And they're starting to think, okay, the way the world's supposed to work is I get what I want all the time when I want it, the moment I want it. And that doesn't produce peaceful, content people. (laughs) That produces really angry, selfish people. So if you really want to help your children deal with their wants, you have to teach them, okay, this is what's happening. (laughs) You want something right now. You want something right now. But... Let's think about how God wants you to, to deal with that want. Um, another way you can make people angry is uh, not dealing with sin in a biblical way. So one of the biggest lessons I've learned in life, but I haven't actually learned it to like life change point yet, but <laughs> learned it, I definitely believe it, is that so often... You think the best way to avoid conflict and to bring peace is for me to avoid conflict and not not deal with an issue. So that's usually, that's my, everybody has different temptations. My temptation is I can put up with a lot of stuff. So I'm just going to ignore this and it's going to get better. And usually if it's, if it's sin that needs to be confronted... Usually that doesn't work. What ends up happening by avoiding conflict is you make more conflict. And it just gets harder to deal with later. And so uh, one of the ways you can create angry people is by uh, selfishly avoiding conflict. Another way uh, you can 
create angry people. Wow, I'm going long on this. But is not encouraging uh, your children when they're worried. So Proverbs uh, 15, verse 4, Proverbs 15, uh, 13. says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Uh, Proverbs 15, 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but the, by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is, is crushed. And so uh, there are uh, problems that your children face, fears that they have, and the way that you speak to them in the middle of that can either uh, crush their hearts or give them courage. Another, uh, we're almost at the end of <laughs> ways that we can make people angry, at least according to Proverbs. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two. another way you can make people angry is by uh, making a habit of overreacting when your children mess up. So Proverbs twenty nine twenty two: a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. And so um, I tend to struggle with overreacting. Uh, when, and, and so when you're the kind of person who expects your children to come out of the womb never struggling with sin or expects the people in your family to never struggle with real sin and just acts like the whole world is, is just, you just can't believe this, you're going to end up being the kind of person that creates angry people. Even with our son now, as, he's, as he interacts, we often, he'll come home and be like, Dad, I, can you believe this, this, I was talking to this kid and this kid said that, and I'm like, um, son, you know kids are sinners, right? Like, uh, it's, it's like what people do, you know, and, and he's talking about something the other day, something that happened, and I'm like, son, yeah, you're just going to have to get used to it. People are, are broken. Now you have a responsibility to run, re, respond correctly, um, and it's, it's, it's neat to see him so shocked, but at the same time, uh, if he's so shocked that he begins overreacting and acting like, oh, this person is in a category all by themselves and so different than me even, then that's really self-righteousness. And it's not surprising that self-righteousness stirs up, stirs up strife. Another, uh, I guess, variation of that would be uh, setting unrealistic expectations for other people and refusing to be patient with them as they try to do the right thing. So like you are, maybe you're a dad and you're like 35 and your child is like four and you're just freaking out because your child is, uh, is responding to conflict with their brother poorly. And you're like, I'm like, man, you're 35 and I bet you have conflict in your life that you're responding to poorly. And so there's a lot of things. doesn't mean that you don't deal with that in your child's life, but it does mean that you need to be careful that you don't set unrealistic, unrealistic expectations where you are actually expecting your child to be holier than you are. And, of course, you want them to be holier than you are, but the point is that you need to be patient with them as they learn how to be holy. 
which is a lot. I think that's probably a lot. And believe it or not, I, I have more to, to say. Um, but if you come back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, I won't go as long on this next one. I'll make that promise so that I don't make you angry. But that's not uh, the only responsibility we have as men in, in our homes. That's what we should not do. But what should we do? What should we do? Paul writes, and let me just kind of emphasize this. Paul writes, but bring them up. Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. And bring them up, that's active. So that means that you cannot be passive as a father. And this is, I I know this doesn't seem quite as bad, like um, just being passive. At least I'm not the kind of dad who makes everybody angry. I'm just a nice guy. I don't do anything. But we all know if I have a garden, there's more than one way to ruin it. So one way to ruin a garden is to take a shovel and start running around and swinging and chopping and tearing everything down until it's all destroyed. But another way to ruin a garden, you can ruin a garden by just not doing anything. And so if I sit on my couch and I look outside at my garden and I do absolutely nothing... It won't be long until I don't have a garden at all, but just a bunch of weeds. And the same is true with your family, and the same is true with your children. It's not enough for you to sit back and just smile and be a nice guy. As fathers, you have to bring your children up. You don't just let them grow up and find out what happens. You bring them up. And so it might be normal in some families for the fathers to be a little distant, when it comes to raising children and to try to take a hands-off approach. I'll make the money. I'll let the wife deal with the children. That's like our, our, our splitting the categories. But that's not normal biblically. As, as fathers, you have a responsibility to directly be involved in bringing our children up, your children up in the Lord. Now, how, how, just again, quickly, Paul tells us how. Uh, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that's teaching. Um, Discipline, that doesn't so much mean spanking or giving a hiding. It actually uh, means education. And so he's saying, fathers, you have a responsibility to educate your, your children. And what do we mean by educate? Are we talking about sending them to a really good school? Not really. The word's bigger than that. It has to do with the whole way of looking at the world. So you have a responsibility as a dad to educate your child in God's perspective on life in this world. In other words, you want to give your children a biblical worldview. What's a biblical worldview? You know how as you grow up in a certain place, you're being trained how to think about the world. And so you're constantly being taught. You're constantly being taught. You're constantly being told, wherever you grow up, this is how you're supposed to think. This is what's normal. This is why in America now, in our youth group there, you know one of the biggest questions that uh, those students have? Is a man a man or a woman a woman? Uh, what is a man? What is a woman? Now, if I go to a certain place in the Congo and sit in a youth group, do you think that most of the people in the Congo are going to be raising their hands and saying... I really wonder, is there such a thing as transgender, like a a man who's actually a woman? I very seriously doubt that there are going to be 
10 kids in a youth group that raise their hand and say, you know what I'm really struggling with? I wonder if a man is a woman. So why in America are all these kids struggling with that? Is it like something in the water? No, it's not something in the water. It's because from babyhood, they're being taught a certain way to think about the world. They're being taught a worldview. And so that question makes sense to them in light of what they're being taught about how the world works. And so that's why I go into a, um, you know, a coffee shop and there's all those guys that work in the coffee shop in America, 10 like high schoolers or college students, and I ask them certain questions. They all have the same opinions and they all think they're unique. They're all like, oh no, I'm my own person. I just think whatever I want to think. But then I ask them 10 questions about the most essential things in life. And every single one of them says the same thing to me. Why? It's because we've got a really good machine now in training people how to think. <laughs> and and what, to, what to say. And so, uh, as, as, as parents, um, we, can't, we can't just let that happen. We have to actually train our children in a new way of thinking, a biblical way of thinking. We have to give them a biblical worldview. I don't know if these, um, I don't know if these would be the same in in Africa, actually. But in America, I can give you a couple examples that of lies that teenagers will believe unless somebody stops them from believing them. So one would be, "How I feel is what's real." That would be a lie that they. I need to teach them. That's not actually how life works. Another would be, you need to follow your heart. I don't know if you've ever watched Disney movies with children, but literally the theme of every Disney movie is you need to follow your heart. I mean, almost everyone. And that actually what's in there is so amazing. It's just incredible. And everybody's trying to stop it from getting out. And so you just need to forget all the authority and forget what everybody else is telling you and just follow your own heart. Or if God's loving, he can't judge. That would be more an American one. Or we're products of evolution. But the point is, you have to look at the culture in which you live as a dad and think, what is, what is my culture, how is my culture teaching my children to think? Because it's like they're planting seeds in your child's heart. And that seed, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't deal with it, is going to grow up to be a tree. So even, you know, why is, you could trace why is, there's a book on this, and I, I really will be done soon, but like there's a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And so what he's doing, is, this is an American, and he's talking about why in America now, like, is it normal, like, a guy walks into the store in a dress, you know, in pantyhose, and everybody's kind of like, oh yeah, how you doing? Why is that normal when like 10 years ago, that would have been shocking. So there's like been this shift. Like how, did, how, and he's saying it seems like it happened quickly. But the reality is he shows that it didn't happen quickly. It, it's actually been like two, 300 years of pressure and of, of, of discipleship really in a certain way of thinking that led us to this point where this has become normal.
And so, I mean, I can do that a little for where I come from, but the point is, as a, a dad, that's part of your responsibility in your home, is to look at your children and think about your particular culture and think, what, how is my culture catechizing, discipling my children in a way that's completely opposed to what's real, to like what the gospel says is real? And I can't just let that happen. I have to step up and think about how do I bring them up. I have to take responsibility to shape my children to think biblically about their lives in the world. We need to educate. That's the first term, discipline. The second term is instruction. And that literally means put truth in someone's mind. And so as a dad, your job is to put truth in your children's minds. And that means you have to sit down with them and talk to your children about the truth and about how it applies to their lives. You need to get specific. Children need fathers who will confront them with the truths of God's word because they're concerned about them making the changes uh, that God requires, which is amazing if you think about it, being a dad, being able to do this. I love that God's given me the opportunity to sit down with my children and get involved in the nitty-gritty issues of their life and help them live out what the scripture teaches at every stage. So when they're little, you do that. But I'm doing that with my daughters. They're 18 to 22 now, my three oldest daughters. My, one, my second oldest daughter, she's in a relationship. And so what am I having to do as a dad? I'm having to help her think about what makes sense biblically. How does it make sense biblically to think about this relationship right now? And so part of what we had to do at the beginning was think, okay, you're getting involved in a relationship you really like this guy. He seems amazing. But where is this relationship actually at? You don't know him that well. You're just starting to get to know him. So what's appropriate for you to feel right now? You're going to feel like, oh, this guy's my whole world. I love him, of course. But what's real? What's real is you've only spent a little time with this, this person. So you, daughter, you're going to have to think. You're going to have to think. This is what I feel. But this is what's real, and now I need to act in a way that lines up with what's real, not with what's not real, which is like, oh, he's so amazing, I just love him so perfectly, and he's just amazing. No, because that's not actually, you don't know that yet. You feel that, but you don't know that yet. So you have to think, how am I going to act, what would be an appropriate kind of relationship for us to have right now in line with what I do know? I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about how you do that with your, with, your, with your children. And yet, the point is, it's, it's your responsibility to do that. You don't want your children to be getting um, their primary counsel about the most important issues of life from idiots. You know, I'm, I mean, that's a tough way of putting it, but like, um, you don't want your children to be getting the primary Instruction about the most important decisions in their life from people who like haven't even hardly lived life yet. Um, and so you, that's really tough because you're old. Once your daughter's 22 or 20, you're old. You, and you're their, their, their dad. And yet you need to figure out a way, how do I get in there with my children to help them connect truth to what's actually happening in their life? And uh, I can imagine you saying, I, 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 I need to do that, uh, but where do I begin? What, what, how, how do I do that? 
And uh, that's actually the rest of this message that I don't have time to talk to you about. But uh, one way to start would be with the gospel. The thing that people in your family need the most is uh, the gospel. And not just uh, sort of like um, the simplistic version of the gospel, but like the, the gospel, the gospel as it's revealed in the scripture. We don't want our children to grow up without understanding the gospel. But then... If you want to get even more specific, let me give you some homework since I don't have time to do it now. Go to the book of Proverbs. So you say, I'm a dad. I know my big responsibility, what not to do. Don't make them angry. Bring them up. I I don't know what I should talk to them about. There's a whole book of the Bible written by pretty much the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus. And you know that whole book of the Bible, what he's doing in Proverbs? He's trying to help his son know how to live a wise life. And so what you can do, if you, wanna, if you really want to know where should you start with your family, is you should look at Proverbs and say, where does he start? What does he spend most of his time talking with his children about? And they make even some categories. And then begin to think, how can I start to talk to my children about that? Different stages for different levels where they're at. And if you want a book for the girls, um, Proverbs is a good book for both. But if you want a book for the girls, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon was a a book uh, written to help young ladies know how to deal with love. But um, men, it's good to be a man. It's a privilege. And uh, uh, yet it's also a responsibility. And uh, we represent our Heavenly Father. So that's pretty big, and we want to represent him well. Um, whether we have children or not, we want to represent God well in our homes. And uh, one way we do that, specifically with our children, is by not provoking them to anger and by stepping up, not just being passive, but taking responsibility for really being a kind of pastor in our home. Thanks, guys. Any questions? Any thoughts? Right, sure. Um, maybe we can ask that in the next session since it's Q&A. It probably would, uh, a lot of the ladies would be interested in that uh, question as well. But that's a good one. Thanks, brother. Give me a couple minutes to think about it then. Uh, guys, don't be afraid to ask for help too um, when it comes to being a husband and to being a dad. And it probably would be good to uh, go to your elders in your church if they're godly and uh, say, hey guys, you have free reign in my life. And if you see me speaking in a way that's not healthy, if you see me um, even relating to my children in a way that 
doesn't seem uh, to be the way God wants me to be. I just want to make it easy for you. Uh, the door is open. You come in. One thing as a pastor that's often hard is like people have to let you into their home. You know what I'm saying? Like into their heart. And uh, sometimes there's like an obvious thing. But you have to think for a long time. It's like, how do I get that door open so I can get into their heart and tell them that? Because it's like so clear that door is locked. So it's sometimes nice if you can just say, hey, the door is open. Don't spend, don't waste a lot of time trying to figure out how to open the door or knock. You, I trust you. You can come into my life and, uh, and, and say what you think needs to be said. Now that pastor shouldn't think, hey, every time I say something, this is straight from God and it's perfectly right. And so, yeah, you can say, hey, I, I don't know. Um, uh, can I give you a little more information or, or maybe... I'm not understanding exactly what you're saying or you're asking, and that's fine. And you might even sometimes disagree a little, but you're, you're inviting them in and you want to be careful before you disagree so fast, like that defense comes up. Because we're all, everybody, every one of us could be great defense attorneys. Like we've been working at that since we were like two. Like you do something wrong, you got 10 reasons why it's not wrong. Um, so it's good at first to be like, okay, defense attorney, be quiet, be quiet. Don't tell, the, don't tell them, but you don't know, but you don't know. Just be like, okay, let me think about that a little. And then you can come back, or if you have a certain kind of relationship, you can just go for it. Be like, oh, can we think this through? Can you help me think this through? But it's good to do that with your elders. It might be good, maybe your elders aren't able to be in your house very much, um, just because uh, they're not able to see you. They only see you at church when you're looking all spiffy and all nice, and so they don't have to say anything. But maybe uh, there's other people that are in your homes more, that you could say, hey, please, if you see me relating to my wife in a way that doesn't, doesn't make sense in light of the gospel, I just want to, I would love for you to say something to me. I think if we would be willing to do that, uh, we would be surprised how, how quickly we could change. Uh, we make change a lot harder than it is because we don't give any space to godly people to say anything to us about we only let them speak to us in real generalities you know like they can only come to us and say love your wife but they can't say to us hey you're speaking to your wife harshly that's not loving do you see what i'm saying so like it's hard to change if it's so general because everybody knows i'm supposed to love my wife so we need to get people in our life that aren't legalistic and like overly tough but that are able to say, hey, have you thought about that decision? It's not, it doesn't seem like a really wise decision in light of what God's saying here. And we don't just be like, how dare you? I'm older than you. I can't believe you would say, or, you know, something like that. No, it's like, okay, thanks for letting me, uh, thanks for, thanks for, that should be normal. Thanks for, uh, I want to think about that. Uh, you're right, or maybe, uh, I don't know that you're exactly right, but um, I appreciate you loving me enough to be willing to say something to me now because a lot of people... A lot of people wouldn't. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.